0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm here with Dr. Peter Goode. Dr. Peter Good published a fascinating book with IB Taurus. The book is called The East India Company in Persia, Trade and Cultural Exchange in the 18th Century. And I'm very honored to have him here today to talk with us about his book. Peter, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Hi, Morteza. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Uh, Peter, this is a very, very niche topic. is uh, in the company has been everywhere, but you've, uh, taught, you, you, your research topic is completely different. Uh, and I must admit that when I came across the book, I thought... It was, you know, the usual kind of research about how East Indian Company has exploited things here and there. But this is a different topic that you've chosen. So before talking about that, can you please tell us a little about yourself, your field of expertise and how you became interested in history and why you decided to choose such a niche topic for which I guess you had to also learn some Persian
1: yeah, so I started out my undergraduate degree and my masters were in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies with Persian, and then Middle East history at the University of Exeter. Uh, I started out, I guess, as a um, uh, interesting in interesting languages. Yeah, I spent my time learning Arabic and Persian, and then sort of gradually realised that while I enjoyed the language side of things, I was more and more interested in the history and culture, especially of Iran. Uh, so I did my PhD uh, as a joint project with uh, the University of Essex and the British Library looking at the Persian factory records of the East India Company. Uh, this was part of a project that was set up by uh, Mark Frost, my PhD supervisor, and uh, Margaret Makepeace, who's the, uh, uh, or oh, I think she's the, you know, her title is curator. Of uh, the East India Office, uh, the India Office records rather. So the project was basically uh, uh, they they came came up with the fact that these records, the the Persian Factory records, uh, which is IORG, uh, the, well for India IOG, it's gone. Um, Twenty nine. That's it. The, the, given how much time I spent with them, I should really remember. Uh, yeah, the, the IORG twenty nine series of records basically never been used for anything very much. That all of these histories of the East India Company look at the letter books in IORG three. Um, they look at IORE three. Sorry. Uh, they look at India. You know, they focus on India, but then the, there's this whole story of the East India Company in the Gulf that just it never really gets looked at. Uh, so they formulated this idea of having a PhD student who turned out to be me uh, to go through and basically try and tell at least part of that story. And for me, it was it was really fascinating. So I came at it from, from a sort of Persian studies background and Persian history background and uh, wanted to try and tell the story of this interaction between the East India Company and the Safavid Empire and the successors of the Safavid Empire, Uh, so Nader Shah and um, the Afghan interregnum that happened between uh, 1722 and about 1733. Tell the story of what was it like to be uh, an East India Company merchant in Persia. First of all, this sort of this story of, uh, of of what it was like to be one of them, and I think that again, that's a story that hadn't really been told. But also trying to use these sources to tell uh, a, a or give a Persian perspective or a local perspective of dealing with the company. So while this is a story, uh, if you like, a, a book about the East India Company and its activities in Persia very much what I wanted to do was to find the local voices in this archive and in this record and see how we could, um, let them speak as, you know, they could refer to them as subalterns, this idea of subaltern studies. Um, but looking at this archive in a really new and, uh, innovative way, rather than just, as I say, um, telling another story about what the East India company bought and sold and how, uh, you know, English, uh, English merchants arrive, and then all of a sudden, history starts. Uh, I didn't want to tell that story. I wanted to tell something different. So that's basically how the project came about and how that how the book uh, came out of my PhD. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, Is this uh, archive publicly accessible? I'm kind of curious myself to have a look if I can have access to digital archive, but I don't think it's digitized.
1: I th- it's in the process of being digitised right now. I'm not sure whether they've fully finished it. Says so Irg29. It's the Qatar Digital Library project. Uh, certainly have been have been digitising parts of it, but whether it's fully available on their platform yet, I'm not sure.
0: So the, the, the archive was in Qatar, you said, or
1: no? So the archives in the British Library in in London, but the the Qatar Digital Library have been doing this this very long term. Gosh, it must be for about fifteen years now. Um, process of digitising India Office records. It started out being centred just on Qatar, then on the wider Gulf, and then you know basically they're now then are digitising large parts of the India Office records of you know uh, of all the areas of the essentially the Western Indian Ocean in India. So on their platform, um, they they have quite a few of these now, if not all mm-hmm. of them.
0: I think last year I was just checking the website, and there were loads and loads of pictures and old records and documents related to Persian Gulf and uh, and and also Iran. And I'm not a historian, but I was just fascinated just going through the documents to see what is there. <laughs> uh, let's talk about is the uh, Indian company. So, can you? Well, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. Uh, generally speaking, can you briefly introduce this this uh, company? what it was, when it was established and why or and when did they decide to enter Persia in the 18th century?
1: So the East India Company was founded uh, in 1600 by a group of merchants in London who essentially wanted to uh, well uh, set up a, a joint stock company where they could trade with the Indies as, as broadly defined, uh, basically everywhere east of um uh, east of the Cape of Good Hope, I suppose. Um, and they originally set their sights on the Spice Islands, so the, the, this area of Indonesia where nutmeg and mace is grown. And, but through competition with the Dutch and also the Portuguese, to a lesser extent, they lost access to, uh, uh, you know, to the spices themselves and decided instead to trade in India. And what they basically found is that uh, English heavy woolen cloth didn't actually sell very well in tropical India for some reason, uh, and that uh, yeah they didn't do a brisk trade in in the in the goods that they brought with them from Europe. So instead, had to had to pay for whatever they bought in silver, which uh, upset the sort of mercantilist um, economic theories of the time. So. What they did instead was they looked at what uh what Indian yeah, Indian merchants bought and Indian consumers bought uh, and then also at other sources of of silver so potential sources of income and one of these uh that they lighted upon in the sixteen 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 um was was Persia and the reason for that is that um the yeah you know, the safavid uh, state. Uh, and Iran sit on quite, most of the, the major cities of, of the empire sit on quite a high plateau, which means that they have very hot summers, but very cool winters with, with strong winds. And that actually there was a significant market for this heavy woolen cloth that uh, that was produced in England and shipped all the way around to, uh, to the Indian Ocean. So what the company essentially planned on doing was selling uh, English cloth in Persia being paid for it in silver and then taking that silver to India to purchase uh, Indian goods or to uh, other ports, for example, Bantam in Java, to buy pepper, nutmeg, other spices. They also, uh, once they'd arrived, uh, got a real taste for the idea of buying Persian silk in large quantities, Uh, and there's a long history of... uh, East India Company merchants desperately trying to make a profit out of the silk trade. But uh, in many ways, that was that was doomed to failure for, for a variety of reasons. But uh, the major event really was in 1622, where the East India Company, in an alliance with uh, Shah Abbas I, the, yeah, Abbas the Great uh, of, of Persia, launched a joint campaign against the Portuguese island of Hormuz. And uh, after a campaign which happened, oh, would have been 400 years ago last year, um, they there was a great conference at Oxford, which I was lucky lucky to attend, where we, we talked about the history of Hormuz, 400 years on. Um, they uh, displaced the Portuguese from Hormuz, breaking the hold of the Portuguese empire in the Persian Gulf. And in recognition for this, the company was first of all granted uh, a treaty, but then secondly, uh, and more importantly, a farman, a, uh, a, a document, a grant of privileges from Shahbaz the first to. Uh, well, a farman, uh, basically, it's not a treaty, so this is often how it's been mischaracterized. This is some kind of uh, two equal powers, um, you know, making an agreement and then you know, having to stick to it. Uh, a farman isn't that. A farman is, a, is as I say, a grant of privileges. It's something that the Shah, Abbas the I, gives to someone who he sees as being his subordinate. So, yeah, you know, the giving of the Farman is it's something that the company welcomed, it's something that they wanted. But this, again, tells us quite clearly about the power dynamics in the 1620s, that the company was very much subordinate or um, in a subordinate position to their Safavid, to our Safavid allies. But yeah, after after the campaign and after the granting of the farman, the company stay then in in Persia from 1622 all the way up to uh, the fall of the Safavid dynasty in 1722, and then onward until 1753, where a French fleet a French fleet uh, under the Comte d'Estaing uh, sails into the Persian Gulf and shells uh, the English factory, destroying it and then causing them to to leave permanently well semi-permanently obviously the uh, uh british empire then got back in
0: uh you've raised a lot of important points but we'll try to uh, unpack them as we go ahead <laughs> uh so so I'm, I'm guessing the main interest of the british indian company was economic activities in in persia right it wasn't to establish really any um, any any let's say uh political or like like they did in india or some other areas there so it was mainly economic interests that they were after am, am i am I right to assume that
1: yeah exactly certainly in this early early stage of the of the company's activities their interests were almost uniquely economic there is often sort of mention made of this this being sort of the seed of 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 either formal empire in India or informal empire in the Gulf. And I think that that um, is a sort of teleological view, this idea that because this is when Europeans arrived, that if you, when you look forward 200 years, all of a sudden you have this formalised empire in India. And I think that that's, that's missing a lot of the story, which again is, is one of the things that I wanted to bring out in the book. And that is that there's no... Um, irresistible rise of the company to polit- you know, to this sort of political power or political hegemony either in India or elsewhere, that actually the company is one, one of many different trading bodies and groups, whether it's the Dutch, the Portuguese, local Arab merchants, later the rise of the Omani, uh, the Omani Empire, as, as different trading networks and political powers. And that the company is, is really interested in buying and selling goods in this period uh, and feel pretty lucky if they manage to turn a decent profit on it, which, generally speaking, they tend to do. So, yes, their, their interests are definitely economic, to a certain extent political in as much as they pursue... Um, grants and different privileges like the farman that they get in persia they spend basically the next hundred years trying to get a similar uh, farman from the mughal emperor which they do later in the 1720s so nearly 100 well, over 100 years later and basically everywhere else they go in what might be called the persian world the indian ocean basin they are always trying to get these grants and privileges something that makes their trade formal that makes their trade easier they don't want to be seen as just another group of itinerant merchants. They also want to have a, a, a political recognition. And this is true in Persia. It's true in Mocha in Yemen, where the coffee trade is is booming in the 1700s. As I say, in the Mughal M- Empire, it takes them over 100 years to finally finally get a similar grant. And, and essentially, everywhere else they go, they try and get these political... Um, these political documents, these, 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 paper, um, you know, uh, uh, Miles Ogborn talks about Indian ink. So it's like this, this idea of a, uh, of a paper empire that they, you know, they, they get the written permission to do what it is they're doing. And then if trouble ever arises, they can always fall back on the grants that they're given. So in a sense, it's political, but only in as much as that politics supports and protects their trading interests
0: and uh, you, you talk about several cities where they're located uh, one of them is Bandarapos which is a port in southern parts of Iran and also Kerman which is more or less uh, my geography is horrible I'm guessing it's in central parts of Iran more or less central it's, it's nowhere near the sea anyhow and that I didn't know so that's uh, something that was really interesting to me but can you talk about these cities why would they decide to to be based there, Bandarapos and also Kerman and uh, we'll talk about Kerman as well because you talk about an episode where there were some attacks let's say their properties were attacking the city so I'm kind of curious to know more about these two cities and why the company's properties were attacked in in Kerman
1: Sure, so basically the company um, always sets itself up in the cities where the goods that they want to trade in are most easily accessible so in Kerman uh, in the Mid to late 1600s and into the 1700s, uh, Kerman wool, wool from 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 the goats that are reared in the local region, becomes this kind of boom product for both the English and the Dutch, and they buy vast weights and quantities of it uh, to then send, be sent back to Europe, where it's turned into felt to make hats, essentially. Uh, so it's a good it's a good lining to have in your in your, in your felt hat. So this becomes the kind of prestige, prestige hat lining for Europe over over the course of about seventy or eighty years, uh, replacing beaver fur. Interestingly, after the beavers are basically hunted to extinction, so Kerman wool is part of this uh, fashion fashion trend away from from beaver fur, which is a quite fascinating world story, from North America North American beavers to goats in. Central Iran, so yeah, Kerman is a city. It's just it's north and east of the coast of the, the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's quite remote from the sea. It's about twenty or thirty days travel, so it's not an easy it's not an easy road to take. Uh, and as I say, the company set themselves up basically to take advantage of the wool market. The company do this in other cities. Bandar Abbas is the major port where they have their. Uh, their factory, what's called a factory, not as in the modern sense of a factory where you manufacture things, but a factory is where your factors, your um, commercial agents live. So Bandar Abbas has the, the, the company's factory. Kerman is a place where they, they keep a house where their merchants go uh, in the right season to purchase wool and to set up an investment with local producers so that they they get their... Yeah, you know, what what they want from from the process, but then they're also set up in cities like Shiraz, which is famous for its wine, uh, and they have their own vineyard which produces wine which they then export around, uh, basically around the world. And in fact, that's my next project that I'm I'm going to start working on soon. Uh, so they have a, a vineyard in Shiraz which is managed for them by a local Armenian. They have a factory as well in Esfahan, the imperial capital of the Safavid Empire, uh, although after 1722 that really falls into, uh, uh, into disuse because of the political turmoil after the fall of the dynasty. Uh, so essentially Bandar Abbas is, is, is the headquarters, Kerman and Shiraz are areas of production of the major goods that the company want to buy and, and ship out. So the story of Kenman, which is where I, I start my book, is really fascinating to me for a number of reasons. First of all, because it centers around uh, one one English merchant, a, a man called Danvers Graves, um, who was a young man in his 20s, uh, so not very much older than most of the, the students that, that, that I teach, who was basically sent out originally to to do the work of the company to buy to buy the wool ship it to or have it carried by camel camel caravan to Bandar Abbas and then for that to be shipped off to europe but poor old well old no your poor young danvers finds himself caught up in um basically the final throes of the rule of um Nadir Shah one of the you know, the, the often called the napoleon of persia one of these great uh, conquerors, you know these real characters of of history. Um, there's a great book by my uh, former lecturer, Michael Axworthy, about about Nadir as the Sword of Persia, uh, returned from his conquest of Delhi, which is the probably the most famous famous victory he ever won. Uh, but Nadashar, Shah, basically by 1746 47, has fallen into paranoia. Uh, there are various. Um, questions about what causes this, whether it's politics, whether it's illness. Uh, Some claim also alcoholism. Uh, So uh, Nader Shah has gone from being this uh, local strongman to general to statesman and has now fallen into dictatorship and, and then madness. And one of the things that he does is that he marches his army to the city of Kerman, where he demands massive payments from local merchants and officials. Uh, And this includes the East India Company, and uh, Danvers Graves is left trying to deal with, first, um, the demands of local troops, uh, then loans from local governors, who the Shah is demanding ever larger payments from, and then eventually direct threats by the shah's troops to him the company's property but also the local servants who work there and i think this is such an interesting story first of all because danvers graves actually meets a shah he gives us one of the few descriptions of the shah in in english um he uh when he can't get an official audience with the shah because of the threats that have been made against him uh he pulls a very dangerous ruse by going to the the military encampment going to the uh yeah going to the the edge of the tents and uh the walls where the the shah is encamped and when he's not allowed in he sees the shah walking across a uh, a roadway, some some distance away, and he starts to shout and draws attention to himself until actually the Shah comes and uh, investigates the racket. Where he has this meeting with the Shah, where he's granted protection and uh, permission to carry out his his business. Um, and the reason why I find Danvers so interesting, Danvers Grove so interesting, is yeah, first of all, he thinks on his feet. Uh, he's the lone Englishman in what is a, you know a rapidly deteriorating. De- deteriorating uh, political situation, but all through that his first concern is looking after the people who work for him his local pers- Persian um, servants the the merchants who he does business with uh, he works very very hard to do as best he can to protect them it's a very human story his his the way that he goes about his business is is, is very is I say it's very human and I, I I find it's quite interesting that a boy Boy, you are twenty-year-old, twenty odd-year-old 20 odd from a small village called Mickleton in Gloucestershire, where his, you know, very middle-class English family had had lived. Um, there's actually a memorial to him in the local church. The the dedication from which is uh, is in my preface to my book uh, has ended up in all the way out in Persia, surrounded by the army of the army that's just conquered India and marching is marching home. And then all of this, you know, all of this chaos happens around him but he seems to keep quite a clear head and uh, works his way through it so yeah essentially as the as the shah's um state deteriorates and he's eventually murdered uh then the political situation completely collapses and danvers graves and his servants have to find a way out of kerman which eventually they do so it's quite an interesting story you know what it looks like when when everything goes wrong and how you how you cope with that
0: mm, it is and he was one of the most fascinating characters that i found uh, in, in your book that you talked about and uh you also talked earlier in the interview you mentioned uh fireman which is not really a treaty but maybe a royal decree or a royal command so they were given some sort of pro- rights or privileges um and then I guess later on in 1697, if I'm not mistaken, if I've written the date here correctly, it was Sultan, Shah Sultan Hussein who kind of some somehow added some more provisions to this mine. Can you talk about the first one, the first mine, what it included, what kind of rights it included? And then what more provisions were added in 1697?
1: Yeah, so the, the the evolution of the Farman is something that I've written about not only in my book, but uh, in a, a couple of articles that I've written since as well. And how this sort of comes to be and comes to pass and uh, yeah, how it works and how it evolves. To start with in 1622-23, when the first Farman is granted by Abbas I, it's very much to do with um, the practicalities of, of trade. It's to do know, uh, yeah, they're, they're interested in um, being granted freedom from customs uh, in order to repay them for uh, their pass in the Battle of Hormuz. They're paid. At first, it's meant to be half the customs of the entire port of Bandar Abbas, but over time, it's realized that the Persians are never going to pay them the full half and the, you know, and the local governor essentially can't afford to if he's going to keep up his... Uh, payments to the central treasury so then they reduce it down to a thousand to which is about two and a half thousand pounds at the time so you know not a bad not a bad sum of money by anyone's uh, by anyone's guess but even that is only then paid quite patchily even though uh, even though the company has this right to it and as I say very often when Local governors refuse to pay them. They bring out the piece of paper. They bring out this the physical document of the Farman or send a copy and say, "Well, you have to do this because it's in, you know, it's in our it's in our agreement. It's in it's in it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege that we're granted." So to start with, it's very much financial. It's uh, freedom from various customs. It's the right to build their factory. It's the right to actually have the yeah, property in the country, uh, and then religious concerns so if an englishman tries to convert to islam and then flees to uh flees to the persians the persians are to hand him back because you know this the kind of this kind of thing is frowned upon uh, turn it's called turning turk in the mediterranean so i suppose turning persian in uh yeah, in, in, in the Gulf region. region. Uh, and yeah, the same is meant to happen in reverse. If a, if a person tries to convert to Christianity and flees to the company's factory for protection or asylum, then the company is, is uh, meant to hand hand this person back. So the, the concerns in the original farming of 1622 were very immediate it's very much about yeah, the, the commercial interests and then yeah, the rights of the rights of the merchants themselves to practice their religion, to practice their trade, but also to have these sort of pro quo um, exchanges if anything goes wrong, essentially. By 1697, what we see is that actually the Fadman has evolved into something that is very different. And this is interesting for, for two reasons. First of all, traditionally a Fadaman only holds uh, holds the, the the rights and privileges contained within it for the life of whichever shah or governor or official actually first um, makes the decree. And the Inter- East India Company's Fadaman is interesting because it's renewed not just in 1623, you know, granted in 1623, and then again in 1697, it's actually re-granted by every Shah in between. So we're talking essentially about three or four iterations between the first copy that we have in 1622 three and that copy that we then get in 1697. So what happens exactly in 1697 is not clear because these these grants could have been added over time. Unfortunately, the records for the company in Persia are lost. For that period so it's not really clear how it how it evolves but you get these two sh- snapshots that are 70 years apart the first as i say very much concerned with immediate yeah, immediate issues around trade and around personal safety and freedom and but by the time you get to 1697 you see something very different you see uh, grants and um, conditions around the rights of children and that's particularly interesting because children you know the children require women and one of the things that the company's records has none of is is mentions of women the only two were really mentioned throughout the oh, many thousands of pages of of records that i looked through one of whom is the wife of one of the merchants who's already died and then she dies and her will is is part of the company's letters and the other is uh, a, a slave called um an uh, enslaved woman called Mana, who is um, in inverted commas the girl of William Cordo, who's one of these merchants. Uh, and she's really interesting because she's framed, either framed or is entirely guilty of, and it's not clear which, of Cordo's murder um so she, her story is quite interesting i wish i knew more about mana and her background but uh, all we know is that uh, is that she's shipped to bombay for trial and then never heard of again so uh i don't know what william cordo was probably like as a man but uh if he had a, a an inverted commas girl who wasn't a wife i don't think he was probably very nice and therefore may have got exactly what was coming to him um so yeah, it's quite interesting that you have these in the Farman. You have this these these grants about women. What happens to children if they're born? Well, that means the children must have been being born to you know, mixed families—families families of local Persian women or Armenian women. Uh, I think in one case, Jewish women and the local Christian English merchants. So that's that's a really different uh, a really different thing from uh, whether you get paid your thousand tuman, um every every year for the customs of 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 the port that's that's a really human you know really human interest and concern what else you see is that uh conditions that don't work are done away with. So, for example, the company, as I said, were, were fascinated by the idea of trading in and selling Persian silk. And for a variety of reasons, uh, the entrenched interest of local Armenian families and merchants, uh, the difficulty of getting silk from the uh, producing regions in the, on the Caspian coast or right in the north of the country all the way down to the Gulf Coast, the, yeah, the expense and the difficulty of that journey and of those you know, of those transactions that needed to take place, the company just end up not being very interested in in Persian silk. It's it, they come back to it time and time again to try and make a profit off you know, from that trade, and it's really clear every time that it's just it's just always too difficult. So in the original Faramon, what you get is these rights to various amounts of silk or access to the silk markets. And by 1697, these had been dropped entirely. So no longer is this, yeah, is is there an interest for the company to have a part in this trade? What you see is that every now and again, Persian shahs introduce their their um, administrations, introduce various goods for purchase for the company. So oh well, maybe you would like to, you know, have freedom of customs from this or from that to try and just stimulate local, local economies. And that in and of itself is quite interesting, uh, but yeah. So, so the, the the difference over those seventy years is quite is quite stark. Um, you go from purely economic concerns to uh, yeah, and uh, say immediate concerns over the rights over religion to family, to local property, to uh, political uh, sorry, not political, but legal. Protections not only for the English merchants themselves, but also for their local brokers, um, the uh, Banyan, so the uh, people from the Indian subcontinent who also act as brokers and bankers to the company, um, their local translators, some of whom are Armenian, some of whom are Persian. Um, one group who are, or one pair of, of them who are actually, uh, half French, half Armenian, so they're quite an interesting pair of people to look at as being involved with this English company. Uh, they all get legal protection through the company. They're, they're, the Farman grants them freedom from various taxation, protection from uh, arbitrary you know, arbitrary uh, attacks on, on their person. Uh, and the company really do... Um, protect these people as well they they use the rights from their farman to protect them from taxation or from physical harm in 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 quite um forthright way so when one of their their brokers is attacked the first thing that the company's agent the the, the head merchant does is goes to the local governor with the farman and says look look you can't do this he works for us uh and because he works for us as you can see in in you know in in the Fadman from your own Shah by the way um yeah you can't you 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 can't treat him in this way, so they're very robust in their use of these in these political terms, but yeah, the Farman's evolution over the course of as i say not just the two copies that we have but also over the reigns of various shahs is is really fascinating to me because it just keeps on getting renewed over and over again. And um, yeah, evolves in yeah really quite telling and interesting ways. It tells us a lot about the company, but also about the Persians themselves. And as I said to you earlier, that was a story I really wanted to tell.
0: Uh, And 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 another question: Let's talk about the people who work for the company. So there were. British people, and 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 there were some Iranians as well. Were there other Europeans as well, apart from the British people working for the company? And in the records that you studied, did you find any evidence that these people did regular business or had engagement with ordinary Persians in uh, in the eighteenth century, apart from the uh, you know the, the the merchants or the um, people who were in the in the government's administration
1: sure so i mean they they trade with all sorts of people but they tend to be my impression at least is that the company are kind of wholesalers so they sell european cloth in in bulk to merchants who then take it up up country to the to the iranian plateau to sell in other cities or they buy wine or wool in bulk to then bring it back to be sold on. So I don't I don't get the impression, although there are some some instances where it kind of points to individual merchants doing this, that the company has its factory, which is a big building with a large warehouse where uh, fairly wealthy merchants come to trade in these, you know in bulk in these goods. But I don't think that in 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 the the, the bazaar of Bandar Abbas there was probably a you know a, an East India Company stall or East India Company shop that people went to for sort of day to day, you know, more day to day things. I think if you wanted to buy English cloth, you bought it by the you know by the bale rather than by the by the yard. Um, that's my impression of that. Although, as I say, there are. In, instances of individual merchants being censured for doing just that so one one of the company's military officers a lieutenant buys a a job lot of rice in India and ships it to Persia and then tries to sell it in the bazaar and uh, the company merchants uh, because you could turn a good profit on rice it turns out um, the company merchants are scandalized by this and you know you you read about how This lieutenant is censured for for daring to go out into the bazaar and sell, you know, just sort of sell rice by the bag to local people. It's obviously not the done thing. Um, In terms of the people who work for the company, it's really very multinational. It's a core of probably never more than 10, very rarely more than probably five uh, English, British, later British uh, merchants who carry out the company's business. There's a garrison for the factory, which is made up sometimes of European soldiers solely, but very rarely, but often a mix of uh, English or British and soldiers who are uh, from uh, the subcontinent, so soldiers that come from uh, mixed Portuguese and Indian households, for example, and families, uh, or local sepoys, local, local, locally raised Indian Indian troops. So there's there's not just a yeah there's there's definitely not an ethnic. Yeah, ethnic or religious divide between the company's various employers they they employ all sorts of people they employ a local mullah a local religious um uh cleric for some time and it's not entirely clear to me what he does day to day i don't think he's there to lead you know to lead prayers five times a day i think that he he's uh, a broker or a go-between he's sort of a, a significant local figure who's paid a a handsome sum by the company to intercede on their behalf. So yeah, there are there are local merchants, there are brokers who are, as I say, banyans, so people from yeah uh, you know, of subcontinental heritage, usually from from Gujarat, uh, who live in the various ports of the Gulf. So there's significant communities in Bandarabas. Uh, there were significant communities in Hormuz before the, the Portuguese were kicked out. Uh, and then in the work I've done on Mocha, for example, there are significant uh, groups of these same merchants who come from there. So, yes, we've got Englishmen, probably Scots and, and you know, other Britons after... Uh, 1707. You have mixed race people who are usually Catholic, who are half Portuguese, half Indian. You have Indian sepoys, you have Banyan merchants, you have Armenian, uh, Armenian translators who were hired. And as I say, you also have these people, uh, they're called the the Hermit brothers, E-H-R-M-E-T, Erme perhaps, because their father was French, uh, who are half French, half Armenian. So there's yeah there's a real cornucopia of different different peoples and ethnicities, religions, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, uh, Hindu, Muslim. You, know, you you've 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 got an awful lot going on there, yeah.
0: And what was did did you find any evidence to 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 know the general attitude, the sentiment of the ordinary Persians towards East, Indian, East India Company?
1: So ordinary Iranians or Persians and local people, it it's very hard to tell. I think because they were there so long and they were so established that they were just part of the furniture, part of the fabric, uh and therefore people did business with them as need arose. Um I don't think they could have been there for 120, 130 years as a you know, as a as a community with their own housing and buildings and all the rest of it. Uh, without having just been accepted as part of the community, I, I don't imagine you know they probably mixed very much with with local people. Certainly, with local officials and merchants, they did. Uh, they exchange gifts, parties, uh, very you know, various social events happened, So Eid is always celebrated with the local governor, whereas Persian officials often send the company gifts and good wishes on Christmas. Um so there's there's definitely an exchange there, but it's hard to know what the you know, the average people of, of uh Bandar Abbas thought about the uh Kula the hat wearers who uh you know who also shared their, their city with them. Uh as I say, in terms of the local merchants and governors, definitely there's there's a working relationship there even if they don't you know, if even if they don't get it on personally. So it's a yeah, you know, they rub along for, as I say, hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty years.
0: Mm. And there is another uh, person you talk about named with Owen Phillips, uh, and I also find him to be a very interesting character. He Started as an agent in Persia, but he quickly rose to the, to the top post. So, who was he, and what was his affiliation with East India Company, and what was the story of his rise from an ordinary agent to uh, uh to a top post in the region?
1: So. It's quite hard to tell. I'm not. I don't know a lot about Phillips's uh, background in comparison to, you know, in, in comparison to some of the other characters. But he's he's quite an interesting man. So he starts out as a writer in I think it's 1709. So right at the bottom of the company's hierarchy, um, and he basically rises through the ranks. So Persia is quite an interesting place because very often you see that. Goods from India are exported by individual merchants to Persia to turn a to turn a profit. As I say, the lieutenant with his rice, this was quite common. I feel that that the the individual merchants and officials bought goods that would sell well in Persia in order to make personal profit, which they were permitted to do under the company's charter. And I think basically Phillips builds up a reputation as and and also some ability as being a, you know, a good. Uh, a good merchant, a capable, yeah, a capable part of uh, uh, the, yeah, the, uh, of the company sort of hi- hierarchy, uh, and yeah, he ra- rises to yeah, finally to be the agent, which is, uh, uh, the, yeah, the highest position that you could hold in Persia, and I think yeah, his rise through the company is basically one of yeah, quite a long, yeah, a long career of being you know, of being seen as the good merchant. Uh it's he gets caught up in what is yeah a very unfortunate um incident where he many of the merchants in Persia die of die of a plague. Uh, we're not really sure what it is. It's described as being a bilious fever, so sounds great. Yeah whatever that is. Um, and yeah, Philip seems to not only survive that but also works his way through it. Um, he He basically does well, and I think I think the way that he then rises through the company is that once you've proven yourself capable in Persia, which, as I say, is is, is considered quite, yeah, quite an important place, but is also described in the company's writings as being an inch deal from hell. Uh, So an inch deal is a is a a piece of wood that's an inch thick. So very, you know, quite a thin round piece of wood so an inch deal from hell is not a lot so if you say it's an inch deal from hell yeah, you know, it's it's a really bad place to have to be so phillips um as i say not only survives but sort of thrives in his time in persia and then uses that experience but also as i say the, the um probably the kudos of having survived so long to You know, uh, build up his his career in the company further from that. But as I said, I don't know much about his background, I don't know as much about where he was from.
0: And uh, so, when I read the book, my impression is that East India Company in Iran was not as notorious as it was in other countries, like. like, India, or I, I think in the email that I exchanged a couple of months ago with you that I said that I read this book, uh, Empire of Influence, or all those other neighboring countries that they had established their uh, offices there. So it seemed that, as you mentioned, for 120 years, they were in Iran, but they were not really, Then them their, their main interest was economic interest. So it wasn't into military expansion or anything of that sort, and that's why it's sort of, uh, didn't develop that negative reputation that it did in other countries.
1: Yeah, so so, so Persia again. This is why this, the story of Persia is so interesting to me. Um, is that, that there's not this reputation of the company as this kind of rapacious overlord that uh, you know you get from India and elsewhere. They never they never gain that kind of political political influence in in Iran. Later, the British Empire, once it becomes a far more formalized body, and uh, obviously the company is is a part of that, um, they exert a lot of influence over over the Qajar dynasty, certainly when it comes to uh, constant British concerns around the safety of India from the encroachment of the Russian Empire, and Iran is very much uh, a part of that story. But certainly before 1800, I think the, the the company as a rule is outside of India. Certainly, um, is is very much concerned with these 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 economic questions. As I say, there's, there's an interesting social and political um, exchange that goes on. But as I say, there, there, there's probably never more than ten Englishmen in Persia at any given time. So the idea that you're going to be able to exert the kind of influence that they do in in India, for example, is never going to happen. It's yeah, <laughs> be very very difficult to to try and dominate a, an empire of nine million people with ten merchants who are busy buying wool in the mountains. I think I think it would uh, uh, yeah. We've, there's a very very different story here, and that's why, as I say, I think yeah, the 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 book is so important. Because it's telling this story about the company, not not with this teleological view of, of, of sort of domination and empire as the as the as the end point, but that actually the company the company leave Persia more or less uh, out by, by being forced by by so the destruction of the factory by the French. Certainly, the economic importance of Persia for the uh, for the company has waned by that point, but. Uh, it's hard to know what would have happened had the Comte de Stang not sailed into the Gulf and destroyed the factory.
0: Um, is there uh, before we end this interview? I'm, I'm keen to know if there is. What's the next step? What's the next project you're working on? I know that you have a very exciting episode ahead of you, an uh, exciting journey. So I'm 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 really interested to know more about that and also the projects you're thinking of uh, doing in the next couple of years.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm preparing myself to move to uh, Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo University of Foreign Studies, where I will be uh, completing a two-year fellowship uh, through the the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, uh, looking at the trade and exchange of Persian wine and Persian wine culture throughout the Indian Ocean world. So. This was something that I touch on in the book, that the company produces its own wine in Persia and sells it and gives it as gifts basically everywhere they go. It's a a huge part of what what they do in Persia is maintaining a vineyard and selling the wine. And yet, other than some sort of very famous remnants, for example, the name of Shiraz as a grape, we know very, very little about the trade in Persian wine. Very recently, Rudy Matte wrote a, a, history of, uh, a history of alcohol in the
0: world.
1: Yeah. Um, I think I have um, the
0: book, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah.
1: it's the angel tapping on the wine shop's store, is it? I can't remember the details. Uh, uh, yeah, right? when the
0: angels knock at the, which is that famous Persian poem. Yeah, well, I can't yeah. remember that. <laughs> last yeah, night the angel's the, knocked uh, at the tavern's door yeah
1: the wine house door yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wine shop yeah wine shop wine house yeah. um so yeah no, he's, he's he's sort of um telling a bit of that story in terms of consumption but basically what i'm trying to do is is not only trace the uh, the archival record of the sale of wine not by just by europeans but by local merchants but also the cultural impact of this so Willem Fleur very rightly and quite famously has said that, you know, in comparison to India or the Ottoman Empire, the Persia was dead poor. And in many ways it was. It was a, a far less economically significant place. But what I and well and others in this idea of the Persian world are arguing is that yes, you're right. Financially speaking, trade in Persia was nowhere near as lucrative as India. You know the population was a you know was a small percentage of the size uh, you know what they produced was much was, was much less but the idea that you could sail from bandar Abbas to the court of Arai in what's now thailand ayutthaya at the time and give him a chest of persian wine and rose water and that not only would this be acceptable to him but he would know what it was tells you an awful lot about trade and exchange but but how does it get there? how does how does the king of thailand of siam know where Persia is, care where Persia is, uh, and certainly why does he care about being given wine or rose water as a gift? In fact, I did some research recently preparing for this about the East India Company's settlement in um, Vietnam, where rose water was a standard part of the gifts that they gave. And... The vast majority of that, I, I, I believe, I hope to find out, was produced in Persia as well. So, not only am I looking at the archival record of, of where it was bought and sold by, by European companies, uh, but I also hope to look at museum collections of the wine bottles themselves, uh, rose water shakers. The Persian wine bottles have a very distinctive shape, and you can see it in in artwork throughout the Safavid period. There's these beautiful shapes shaped bottles with with long narrow necks Um, and they turn up everywhere they're in museum collections in Europe, North America, around the Indian Ocean world. Um, I haven't spotted any in my my to-be host country in Japan yet but uh, I'm really hoping I find one uh, because it just goes to show that as I say the cultural impact the cultural importance of Persia of Persian wine specifically in rosewater more you know, as part of that uh is not just economic it's also stylistic it's artistic it's cultural um yeah you know, there's 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 a big story to be told there i think and uh yeah I'm going to spend the two year next two years trying to tell it
0: sounds like a very very fascinating project and i certainly hope to be able to talk to you about your uh, future monograph book when, whenever it's out <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I look forward to talking to you about it too.
0: Peter, good. Thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.